I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Hi, everyone. Marty West here. We're trying out a new format for this week's podcast. On April 26th, Education Next joined forces with the Thomas B. Fordham Institute to host a debate doubleheader on whether the Trump administration should go big on school choice by creating a federal tax credit scholarship program, and if so, how. I had the opportunity to moderate the first debate, and Tom Carroll of Invest in Education and Neil McCluskey of the Cato Institute did such a good job of laying out the issues that we thought we should make it available here. It's a bit longer than our usual offerings, but definitely worth the listen. I hope you enjoy it and that, if you do, you'll head to our website to see the video from the full event. But uh, without further ado, let me introduce our first moderator, my colleague at Education Next, Marty West, uh, also a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Marty took over as editor-in-chief of EdNext uh, just last summer. That's right. Uh, and it continues to be a great uh, publication. And Marty's going to uh, take us away with this first debate. Marty. Excellent. Thanks, Mike, for the introduction. Thanks to, uh, for co-sponsoring this event. Uh, with us at Education Next. Thanks to Hoover for hosting us in this beautiful facility. I'm excited to have the opportunity to moderate this first debate because I really think it's a fascinating opportunity to consider the relationship between two long-standing conservative priorities for American education policy. Of course, those would be reducing the federal footprint, both in terms of finances and in terms of regulations on American public schools, the second priority being expanding parental choice, including the opportunity to attend a private school with government support. These are ideas that conservatives have generally favored over the past couple of decades. And as a candidate, Donald Trump certainly sounded both of those themes. And with his appointment of Secretary Betsy DeVos uh, as Secretary of Education, he clearly signals his, his, signaled his intention to follow through on the latter. Of course, the big question is whether those ideas are really compatible. Can they be reconciled? And that's what I think we have the opportunity to think through in this first debate, where we're asking the basic question, is the idea of the federal government offering a tax credit to uh, subsidize scholarships that would allow families to attend private schools really a good idea? Is there a role for Uncle Sam in this? or will the feds inevitably screw it up? Uh, joining me to debate that question uh, are Tom Carroll and Neil McCluskey. Um, the, Tom will be arguing in favor of a federal initiative in this area. He's the president of the Foundation for Opportunity in Education based in Albany, New York. He's played a key role in the development of education policy in New York State as a analyst and advisor in the state legislature. He played a key role in particular in uh, the adoption of charter school laws uh, legislation in that state. And more recently, he's been an advocate at the state level for the creation of a tuition tax credit scholarship program of the type that we're discussing here today. Uh, to his left is Neil McCluskey, who will be arguing against uh, federal involvement. He's the director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. 
Before that, he was a high school English teacher and also served in the U.S. Army. He's the author of an important book, Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education. Uh, If you have any questions about what the thesis of that book is, maybe we can ask him. But uh, he will be prepared to make the negative case. I'm going to give each of them about 10 minutes to lay out their initial positions, five minutes then to respond to what they've heard, and then I'll begin asking them some questions before we open it up to the audience. So thanks for being here. And without further ado, Tom, I'll hand it over to you. Great. Thank you. Uh, First of all, let me describe what I think the opportunity is. You have what I view as a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get something very bold done on school choice, something that applies to all 50 states. You obviously have Republican control of both houses, which I'm not making a partisan point, but given how the Betsy DeVos nomination went down, we kind of know what uh, Democratic control of both houses would look like on school choice issues. And you have a president, although unique in many ways, uh, to say the least, The one most important characteristic for this debate is it clearly does not give a moment's thought to what the teachers' union thinks on any educational issue. Uh, That has not been true of any president of either party for a long time. So lots of things suddenly become possible because the political environment is so dramatically different. So the question before us then is, do we go big or do we go small, assuming that the people in this room yeah, including the panelists, actually have the ability to decide that question. So a number of people have argued, uh, and I think Neil's essential argument is that we should do nothing. Heritage has argued that we should do something, but basically what I've, I've called, and Peter Murphy's in the, uh, the audience called, kind of a small potatoes approach, that we do a couple micro-proposals along the way, whether it's D.C. scholarships, military scholarships, something that involves the Bureau of uh, Indian Affairs and so forth, all of which I don't have. I'm, I'm kind of an all-of-the-above school choice person, so I don't have a problem with any of those. But the question is, is that really, are those proposals uh, right-sized for the, the size of the political opportunity before us? Because we have a window here that's going to close at some point, and once it closes, it literally may never be seen again in their lifetime. So from my perspective, I vote for going big, not going small, and certainly I vote against doing nothing. Now, details matter a lot when you say we should do something, we go big. The specific thing that I propose is, first, I think we should do something on the tax side versus something on the spending side. And part of the reason for that is, for reasons that Neil will soon articulate, is virtually every spending initiative that's been done, has, whether at the state level or, or at the federal level, has been tied with tremendous number of federal restrictions and really has opened the door to all kinds of what I call nanny state regulations. Uh, The history on the tax side, although not perfect, has been, by comparison, um, much more free of regulations. Then if you're going to do something on the tax side, my own preference is to do something uh, that would, as we've been trying to do in New York, and has 17 states have done so far, notably uh, Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, a few other key states, Indiana, where the vice president's from, is to do a tax credit that encourages more charitable donations to nonprofit scholarship funds. The idea is really simple. Right now, there's a charitable deduction that encourages, among lots of charitable purposes, that people give to scholarship organizations, including K-12 scholarship organizations. We just simply want to ratchet up the percent value of that tax benefit. 
So whether you're whatever tax rate you're paying at, you're paying 35 or 38 percent or or uh, whatever, that would go up to 100 percent because you'd get a dollar for dollar tax credit. Um, that's what we're in favor of. Obviously, we think educational is a foundational issue in the country. Almost every other issue uh, relates to whether you get the education piece right for children at a young age. It affects almost every other area of public life uh, and private life and obviously every other area of the federal budget one way or the other. So we would make it kind of first among equals and give it this special status by giving a tax credit for people who uh, donate philanthropically to nonprofit scholarship funds. We would do it in terms of details, all 50 states. There's not a lot of precedent for having uh, federal tax code vary by state. Uh, and so uh, I think it naturally flows that if you did a federal tax credit, it would apply to all 50 states. We're in favor of a clean bill. Neil probably would agree that if you were to do a bill, he doesn't agree on doing a bill, but if you were to do one, uh, he would be in favor of the least amount of regulation and the least amount of damage. We agree on that. So that means in a, a couple of respects, one, that nothing should be included in the bill that impairs religious liberty. Nothing should be included in the bill that, in my view, that reduces the autonomy of individual schools. I've seen kind of the creep of bureaucracy on the charter school front, having been there at inception for when it, we have one of the strongest charter school laws in the country in New York. And even from people that I would consider friends, the temptation to regulate and regulate and regulate kind of creeps up over time. So I think it's important to get it right on the front end. I also um, believe that it's important that it not only help the economically disadvantaged, but that it also uh, uh, help middle-class families who, depending on where they live, uh, face many of the same challenges in being able to afford an exercise choice and could benefit from uh, scholarships as, as well, depending on uh, you know, whatever local scholarship organizations decided. So the two big objections are, you know, the, one, the federal government doesn't have authority to do anything in the sphere of education. Uh, Neil can articulate that more than I can. It seems obvious to me that since the 1960s, particularly since the creation of the Education Department, that that issue has already been established that, um, and it's not successfully been challenged by anybody constitutionally. Uh, if you think of Title I, IDEA, uh, the mere existence of the Federal Department of Education, whether you like it or not or think it's a good idea to have any of those programs, there's no doubt that the federal government has a big footprint, and there's no doubt from a constitutional perspective that it has the authority to do all those things, uh, witness the mere fact that nobody's been able to stop it in the courts um, in 30, 40, 50 years. The second thing is that bad things will happen in the future. Uh, this is something that uh, I'm an Irish optimist, but I agree with Neil that bad things will happen in the future. Uh, I happen to think that bad things will happen in the future whether a scholarship tax credit bill is, happens or not. Uh, all you have to do is look back at the Obama administration and look at the attempts at regulatory overreach to believe, to understand, that if a certain type of administration got elected, uh, that they would try to do a lot of things that Neil and I would disagree with. Um, and the fact that they were able to contemplate all those things without the scholarship tax credit even being seriously considered in the last eight years suggests that that's an ever-present threat that I would suggest all of us should spend a lot of time reflecting on how we could defeat that uh, in whatever form it comes. 
but I don't think it's unique to this particular issue. I don't think the stakes are higher or lower. I, I think that's a broader cultural issue in which there's a very, very strong fight, particularly against religious institutions. There's a natural tendency of all government agencies to want to micromanage any private institution, whether it's corporate or nonprofit. And those are things that we have to be ever vigilant on uh, regardless. So I think we would agree on that. So in conclusion, I would say I think it's important to seize the opportunity that what we all should do is get together and whether if the bill does start moving forward, and we frankly don't know whether Trump will actually move it forward, but Mike is right, the kind of the scuttlebutt, the word on the street uh, is that this is going to be given serious consideration. And if that is the case uh, and the bill is put out there, then I think we should all work together to try to make sure that it's the best bill possible in terms of expanding school choice and ensuring the participation of religious institutions, the freedom of parents, uh, the autonomy of schools, uh, and in a way that we can get the best possible outcome. And understand, as we did in New York when we did the charter school law, we knew that the teachers' unions were never leaving planet Earth. Uh, they'll, they'll be here, you know. I, I joke after, uh, you know, a, a nuclear attack, the only thing left will be cockroaches in the teachers' unions. Um, so I think you have to understand that they're playing a very, I say that actually with admiration. They're, they're, they're playing, I, I used to have great admiration for Ted Kennedy, although I did not agree with him on a lot of issues, because over his lifetime, he had a goal in mind, he knew what it was, and he just, every day of the week, he moved his agenda forward. Uh, and towards the end of his life, one of the things that he wanted was health care reform. He ended up getting it because of that constancy of vision. I think on the school choice side, we have to have the same kind of commitment to waging this battle over a very long time. One, so that we prevail on the behalf of children. And two, so that Neil's nightmare doesn't come true. Uh, because I agree, I don't want the nightmare that Neil outlines to come true either. And I think we have to all work together to make sure that it doesn't happen. Thank you. Neil, what is that nightmare? Well, the, my first nightmare is that you'll admire me. And I don't know what you'll end up. You'll call me the plague or something. Um, but uh, I guess I get the role of the Irish uh, pessimist in, in this. Um, uh, but I do, I want to start actually by thanking Hoover and Education Next and Fordham all for putting this together and inviting me and also for the debate we got to have on Education Next, which, is, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, I do, though, have a complaint about today's event, um, which is it's very much slanted against me. I mean, think about what the second panel is. It's essentially, well, we know Neil's going to lose, so now let's talk about how we set this thing up. Um, uh, but that's okay. I can handle that. You know, if you know sports, you know that it's kind of good to be the underdog because they're always, you know, like, there's no pressure on him because that guy's going to lose anyway, probably. It's the guy who isn't the underdog who has all the pressure on him. So are you feeling it? Uh, just, I, I feel your pain. <laughs> all right. You're, you're going to feel more pressure in a second, I guarantee. Okay. So now that I have set myself up where I can't lose, um, Let's talk about why not federal choice. I mean, I, I like school choice. I think we've decided many of the people, most of the people behind this room like school choice. Why not kind of go big or go home, especially when we have this political window of opportunity um, to do it? But I think there are numerous reasons that we do not want to go down this road. Let's not be enticed by this shiny object. 
I'm going to go through six of them. There are probably more. I could expand on all of them, but we'll try and get them real fast because we've got more debate to go. Obviously, the first one, as Tom has talked about, is this is my nightmare, which is that you have federal control, ultimately, of ostensibly private institutions, that we kind of render choice much less meaningful because we're using it, we're getting it through a mechanism where, yeah, we can choose a school, but that school isn't allowed to be much different from the public schools that we're trying to move away from. Um, and yes, absolutely, a voucher is a more dangerous way to do this. If the money comes directly through government, we've seen the research. Andrew Coulson, my former boss, had done much of this research. We know that the vouchers tend to be more regulated than tax credits. But we need to be very clear that regulations come with tax credits, and we can look at higher education to see this. If you want to claim a federal tax credit for higher education, you must go to an institution that is accredited. And the federal government, not only does it have sort of direct regulation of schools if you take this federal money, and almost every school in America takes it, almost every college, but they also regulate accreditors. And they say, accreditors, since you're sort of the gatekeepers for this student aid, including tax credits, you say, well, you know, every school has to have a, a million volumes or more in the library, and you have to have this and that and the other thing. Um, and that is also part of these tax credits. They, through uh, accreditation, regulate the schools to make them look very much the same. This is why we talk about there is such limited innovation in higher education. It is through accreditation, and the federal government says, we're not going to regulate you schools on everything. We're regulating a lot. We'll regulate the accreditors, tell them what they have to demand of you. And so, essentially, you have federal control of higher education. And tax credits are one way this is done. And I think that if you were to have, even not in some initial proposal that came from the Trump administration, if you didn't see something that said, well, okay, if you claim a credit for going to a K-12 school, that school has to be accredited. The first time, or the second time, you see maybe a scholarship granting organization, if we're talking about donation credits. If a scholarship granting organization lets someone take um, money to a school that doesn't do well, maybe it just gets bad math scores, or worse, they have a discriminatory policy of some type, or somebody absconds with money, you'll quickly see the regulations, if they aren't there to begin with, added to it, because that's how politics often works. All you need is anecdotal evidence to say, ooh, something bad was done with this tax credit, which we, the federal government, have created. Now we have to regulate it so that bad things don't happen. So the next thing then is federalism is really important. Um, suppose that the idea that we should have a federal, a serious federal role in providing money for people to choose colleges, or I mean, sorry, to go to K through 12 schools, suppose that really explodes, I mean, that really takes off. We can look at higher education, actually, to see that having happened. If you go back 40 or 50 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of federal student aid for higher education. But as soon as you have some, the people who aren't getting it say, well, we need some. You have colleges start to raise their prices because, the, the, frankly, the money is there for them to get. Then you have more people who need aid because, well, now the price has gone up, and you get this vicious cycle where you have dependence now on federal education money, essentially federal vouchers, federal tax credits, 
federal loans. And so there's a very good chance that even if we start small, it becomes much bigger. Then what you have is essentially the federal government crowding out states saying we'll now be the primary funder of students. It won't be that you have your voucher program in this state and you have an ESA program over here. It's everyone will go to the federal government. You've now pushed states out of the way. You have essentially destroyed federalism. And then you lose all the benefits that go with federalism. You lose protection from failure when a policy doesn't work out. I mean, this is what laboratories of democracy are about, right? One state can try something. If it doesn't work, it doesn't drag down all the other states. If it does, states can try those things. They can change them so that they go are consistent with the culture of that state or the politics of, state, of that state. We get protected from bad policies. And we get these laboratories of innovation. We can say goodbye to those things. And if you think about the school choice movement, 10 years ago, people weren't thinking about education savings accounts. A state had to try that. And people said, hey, look, that's a good idea. That's the sort of innovation you get when you have federalism. If you have the federal government become the primary funder of school choice, you lose that. And it's extremely important. Then we have the Constitution, and, and you're right, absolutely, the Constitution has been sort of shunted aside in education the last 50 years. And so is, though, the right argument, well, psh, we already violate that thing, I mean, who cares about the Constitution? If we really want something, you know, if it's something good, if it's school choice, then we should say, okay, we'll go along with what we thought has been wrong all along, because it gives us something we want. I can't, I can't really do that, one, because if I go and make an argument about, look, these federal policies in education aren't working, and by the way, there's no specific enumerated power that gives you any control over education, how can I make that argument and then turn around and say, well, except for school choice, because, well, I like that. School choice is good. The Constitution has to matter, that there are specific enumerated powers, and that's it, has to matter. And if we're going to make that argument, if we're going to stop the federal government from doing all sorts of things in education that I think is clearly are not working, and we're going to say, by the way, part of this is based on the rule of law, then we can't say, but we're going to push the rule of law aside for something that we like. And I should also say, uh, sort of snarky, but... By the way, if you want Elizabeth Warren, Secretary of Education, making the decisions for all private schools, go ahead, then let's have more federal school choice. Anyway, the next three are shorter, and I know I'm running out of time, so they have to be shorter. Um, but these are sort of secondary, but still actually really important when we think about it. And we shouldn't make policy with a narrow focus only on, well, we do education, we do school choice, and nothing else matters. The tax code. Anybody familiar with the tax code? Anybody do your taxes lately? April 15th or 17th, whenever they were due. Not that long ago. The tax code is sort of an efficiency-destroying, special interest-coddling, taxpayer-befuddling, sort of social engineering disaster. I mean, does anybody understand what all the, the loopholes are, everything, how it works? I mean, the federal government could probably find audit almost anybody and find something wrong, in part because the tax code is incredibly complicated. If you add another tax credit, you only make it more complicated. And I certainly understand that we say, well, it's already extremely complicated. This is just one little thing relative to all that complication. It's for something really good. It's for school choice. But remember, everybody is saying, I just want my little thing. But when everybody says, I just want my little thing, suddenly you have a giant atrocious thing that nobody can work with. And we shouldn't be adding to that. 
Then there's, I think, a political problem with calling for federal school choice. It wasn't that long ago we were doing school choice, and we didn't see a big national backlash against the idea of school choice, of, of, of having people choose private schools. Certainly there was a debate, and it was ongoing, but it seems to me at least that that ramped up significantly in the last, you know, well, since roughly January. Um, and you have both the media writing more about it, often negative stories, and you have sort of policy people who would kind of let it go, now thinking, boy, I better pay more attention to school choice. And so you probably, many of you saw what Kevin Carey wrote in the New York Times several months ago. He wasn't thinking much about private school choice before that. And you could, it's not a secret, I don't think. I saw it on Twitter where he's saying, hey, I haven't been paying much attention to this. Somebody, please, tell me what the research says. And he went to Marty West, the right guy to ask about the research. Um, but it's an illustration that there were a lot of people who weren't paying attention. And then if you read his article, you could see that this was intended, I think, um, or at least that's how it appeared, to be, I'm going to say school choice doesn't work, and I'm just going to, sure, base it on some, some recent studies without really getting into what's specific about it, one study that hasn't been published. But the point isn't necessarily that the critiques that we're seeing against school choice are necessarily valid or that they're right, it's that they are there. And now we're having to fight a much bigger, much more national debate, which is, requires a lot more resources, a lot more time. And I think we're going to see a lot more just sort of, quote unquote, straight media stories that are very negative. Is this ultimately going to be good politically for the cause of school choice? And I, I will say, whether you like Trump or not, I'm not sure the association with the Trump administration is politically positive. Um, finally, I'd say we also have to recognize that states have been succeeding at this. Thirty years ago, there were essentially no modern private school choice programs. There were no charter schools. This year, there are at least, as last I counted in 2017, there were 61 private school choice programs around the country. They enroll about 450,000 students. Now, I know that's not nearly as big as we would like, but that's huge progress. And we're actually at the point where nobody goes around. You don't have uh, candidates for a major office. Even when President Obama was candidate Obama, he said, of course people should have a say in where their kids go to school. That is huge progress. And I don't think that we should jeopardize that, either with regulatory controls or maybe even a political disaster, when we see so much progress already being made at the state level where constitutionally it should be made. And so now, and I've kind of laid out my case, and I, so my question to especially the organizers is, is it too late to change the topic of the second <laughs> to, you know, Neil totally convinced us, no, it, maybe not, did you organize it? No, so where's Mike Petrilli? He, he, it, you could change it to Neil totally convinced us that federal school choice is a terrible idea, but we should do something about how we just dismantle the whole federal education operation. Tom, you now have a very important responsibility, which is to save the second panel. Okay. Uh, uh, Neil's laid out a parade of horribles. I'd invite you to respond for five minutes, you know, however you like. But one of the things I want to make sure that you address is this concern that even if you get what you refer to as a clean bill initially, that inevitably this will not look so clean uh, sure. under a new administration. And you know, in your remarks, you sort of said you're worried about regulation regardless, but. You know, wouldn't this open up private schools to federal oversight in uh, a way that wouldn't be the case otherwise? So, okay, let me uh, 
try to respond to those 18 points in five minutes. Uh, and I'll do that by grouping. First on the constitutional issue, it keeps getting asserted with no proof that it's unconstitutional at all. You've had a very long time to win a court case dismantling all the federal funding that exists now and the U.S. Department of Education, and Cato's never been able to win that court case. So I'm looking forward to see how that works out. S second thing is, even under the U.S. Constitution, no matter how you read it, the federal government has always had the power to tax under any configuration in a federal system. And part of the power to tax is to decide what they're taxing and how much they're taxing it. Uh, so that's not constantly—I don't see how anybody would argue that's constitutionally suspect. Third, Article 10 doesn't say all the powers that aren't enumerated specifically for the federal government revert to the state. It says the state or the people. So what our plan does is essentially drive philanthropy down. It's private individuals making donations to private nonprofits who then will get applications from private parents to give money to private individuals called children. That is driving it down to the people, not making all of those decisions made by the federal government or the state government. And I know you're fascinated with state governments, but I, I will invite you to New York to experience a state government that is just as out of control as the federal government. So I would prefer following uh, the doctrine of subsidiar subsidiarity, which has its roots in Catholic social teaching, of driving it even further down, because I don't trust federal politicians or state politicians. So let me make that point. Um, the question of uh, does the federal government have a new nexus? The f first of all, the federal government already has indicated, in a, first of all, private schools do get federal money. Not all private schools take it, but a lot of private schools get federal money. So they already have the nexus, and they've already opined on all kinds of issues. And I have no doubt if Elizabeth Warren becomes Secretary of Education, even if the scholarship tax credit's not approved, she will try to do whatever she's going to try to do. And so I think all of us have to gird for that battle. And that's why I think this is a long battle. So when we did the charter school law in New York, on my theory that the unions are no, never going away, I collected all the donors that were behind the effort and said, look, this is a long-term battle. Like, we're going to be fighting the teachers' unions on this issue forever. And we have to roll up our sleeves. There's no way around it. And they're coming for us. And they're going to try to regulate the hell out of everything. And we have to organize for that coming. And I think we have to organize that even if the scholarship tax credit is not proposed or approved. So I, I don't think that really changes it uh, that much at all. You have the view that in a nation of 350 million people, that 450,000 people in all these private school choice programs that have come into being over the last two decades is enough progress that we should allow that trajectory, which roughly goes like this instead of like this. And if you're a mom or a dad with a kid about to enter preschool or kindergarten next year, the thought that you would just sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait, because on that trajectory, that kid will get a scholarship roughly in the year 3027. Uh, at that point, we'll all be dead, uh, unless you know we do the cryogenics or whatever we do to come back to have this debate again in another 100 years. Uh, but it, it simply isn't an answer for those families. 
So we think we have an answer that we'll give if it's passed this year. Scholarships will go out next year. Literally millions of kids could get scholarships. I don't agree that it's constitutionally suspect at all. Uh, and I understand that we have to do it right. And if a proposal ends up being the wrong proposal, I'll be standing next to Neil uh, screaming just as loud to try to kill the proposal. I'm not in favor of any tax credit at any cost. I'm in favor of a very particular approach to doing this that I think is a very clean approach. And if it ends up that in the politics of the swamp of D.C., that a clean approach is not possible, then I'm, I'm no longer with it. And I will, I will do as much as Neil, uh, maybe even more, to try to stop uh, a bad bill from happening. So I'm an optimist. I think there's an opportunity. Uh, but I'm also a realist. I understand things can go wrong. I'm willing to prepare for the future, and I'm willing to switch sides uh, if this ends up not being the clean bill that I favor. Neil, Tom, questions your, I guess, the pragmatism behind your arguments about the constitutionality of the federal role in education. Given that there is a federal role, despite those arguments, why not try and take advantage of it to advance a goal that you say you endorse? Yeah, well, I think that I think what Tom said really gets it, which is, if a clean approach is not possible, you won't support it. And I'm here to tell you, a clean approach is not possible. Even if it starts clean, we can look at even federal tax credits and higher education and say, rules and regulations will eventually be attached to these things. And we can see how this happens in school choice, lots of other programs. All you need is a few anecdotes, especially high-profile anecdotes of something going wrong, and what is in the incentive, the best interest of a politician in Washington is to say, well, we're going to add regulations so that we can send the message we don't tolerate this, even if we don't think those regulations necessarily work, even if we think they have huge unintended consequences. What benefits us is to say, we're going to keep this from happening. And since the teachers' unions aren't going away, the teachers' unions were a great driver of this sort of thing, saying we got a whole lot of people who are going to talk a whole lot uh, to a lot of other people a lot of the time about this bad thing that happened in school choice. And so they'll be driving the regulation. We don't think they're going to go away. We know that we have three or four or four and a half million union members who are going to try their hardest to say, well, let's regulate these private schools. Not to mention the fact that there are a lot of people who have a lot of reservations about any money going to a religious institution. And I can almost guarantee there will be regulations about what a religious institution can do, at least in terms of admissions. And there'll be people who are saying, well, here are things you're not allowed to teach because we think that they may discriminate or they may be inaccurate. And totally understandable why that is, because people say, well, okay, even if it's not a voucher, and absolutely vouchers are more dangerous than tax credits, but even if it's not a voucher, they say, well, look, this is money that never goes to government that would have been used on the public schools, which is being diverted. We can't let it be diverted to something that teaches creationism. You know, that's probably the one that comes to mind most. But it could be all sorts of other things that people say, well, this is beyond the pale. You can't teach whole language, or you can't teach phonics, or you can't teach whatever, because we think that that doesn't work. So is a clean approach possible? I'm not sure it'll start that way. I'm pretty sure it certainly won't be clean after it's been around for a while. Uh, I also would, would note that, um, well, in terms of the constitutionality, 
Uh, I think that certainly what we can see historically is that courts change their minds, which is why the federal government is involved in education. Switching time stage nine is when we decided that instead of saying the federal government was constrained to specific enumerated powers, that it can do anything. And by the way, the tax, the tax provision and the general welfare clause, tax clause, general welfare clause, if you read the Federalist, it says very clearly that is in service of the specific enumerated clause. It does not mean that you can tax or give tax credits for whatever purpose the federal government wants. The whole idea of a federal government was to be constrained to specific things, and then, like you said, everything else is left to the states or the people. And I'd also say within government, subsidiarity means not having the federal government say, we will try and engineer something. And that is sort of what school choice is. It's actually taking us away from a monopoly toward more freedom. I actually absolutely think that's right. But within systems of government, it's clear that this tax credit is saying, well, we're trying to get more school choice. The question then is, is the subsidiarity, the federal government should say, we're going to bypass the states and local governments and go right to the people, but oh, by the way, we're going to put lots of regulations on these things? Or do we say, it's not our job, the Constitution doesn't say it's our job, and even though states often make bad decisions and they're, oh, I'm from New Jersey, so I know what bad government looks like. Um, <laughs> Even though they make bad decisions, is it better that we at, we have lower levels of government do this? And oh, by the way, at least we're not imposing New York's government on everybody, and Arizona can still do good stuff because they're not New York. Or do we say, well, let's just have one central government kind of make these decisions because we don't like what states have done? So, Tom, I want to actually return to a point you made at the very opening of your remarks, which was about the need to take advantage of the moment uh, politically. And, you know, one other recent development or aspect of the current moment is that we've just seen results from a handful of statewide voucher or scholarship programs that have been enacted by the states in recent years. And the early results from evaluations of those programs have been actually quite mixed, in some cases suggesting actually large negative effects on the math and reading achievement of students initially transferring from uh, public to private schools. Given that, why is now the right time to actually create a universal nationwide program that would operate in all 50 states? Don't we actually need to figure out how to make this work? Yeah, so part of it is what your view of accountability is. So there's different accountability structures in regular public schools, in public charter schools, and in private schools. I don't think that the accountability regime in public or charter schools should be applied to private schools or that they should be measured in the same way because private schools are chosen for a lot of different reasons. And I haven't yet met a private school parent who chose a private school because of standardized test scores or because of evaluations, or whether the school was accredited, or anything like that. Some people are doing it as a matter of faith. Some people are doing it for safety reasons. Some people are doing it because they think the school does a better job at instilling character and virtue. Some people do it because they want a single gender option for their child, which is more prevalent, not exclusively in the private market, but it's prevalent, more prevalent in the private school market. So in the high, one of the reasons that uh, race for the top and Common Core blew up in people's faces is because there was a disconnect between what policy elites valued and what parents valued, and the unions took advantage of it. 
which is kind of all the chattering class uh, believes that test scores are the be-all and end-all, and the parents simply don't. And so when you got to a situation, which was coercion on race for the top and common core, started voluntary, but then became a coercive uh, thing, uh, parents wanted nothing to do with it. So you have in New York, you have a massive testing of what is it, Peter, like over 20% of the parents have opted out of standardized testing in public, regular public schools. So I would, myself, I'm more libertarian on this issue than other people uh, may be in the room, is I would let parents actually choose which schools they wanted to go to, uh, whether anybody who studies private schools agrees that that school's a good school or not. Um, so I would prefer there be more good schools than bad schools, but I'm also not willing to substitute my judgment for the judgment of a parent living in a particular neighborhood, assessing what the options are, knowing that the accountability regimes, uh, particularly with public schools, has not produced higher quality public schools. Uh, so I'm not confident that applying that to the private school market would lead to different outcomes and results. So, Neil, we, we heard you offer a very different characterization than Tom of the amount of progress that private school choice has made in the states. You talked about 61 programs. Tom, you talked about the number of students who are attending a private school with a subsidy from one of those programs, and it's well less than 1% of you know, K-12 children nationally. So, you know, given that actually limited scope of these programs over really a couple of decades of pushing for them, you know, why not try and use the federal government to sort of increase that pace? And in order to sort of, I don't know, uh, uh, make the case for that, let me try out an argument that libertarians may find more attractive. Many libertarians accept that government, and the federal government in particular, has a role to play in breaking up monopolies in the private economy. Wouldn't a federal school choice program, in effect, serve much the same purpose, giving consumers options beyond those operated by, you know, those offered by 14,000 geographically defined local monopolies that currently provide public education in the U.S.? All right. Uh, so, I guess I'll start with your first one because. I'm still writing my note for that, so I won't forget it. Uh, in terms of breaking up monopoly, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I think, though, that it would be much more beneficial if instead of focusing on a federal school choice program, if we want to do something at the federal level to break up a monopoly, we start to dismantle the federal Department of Education and the things that it does, because the vast majority of what it does is about propping up these monopoly systems. Um, and so I don't see, actually, that a tax credit would destroy, a federal tax credit would destroy these monopoly systems, but I do see a very real and present danger that a federal tax credit would become a vehicle for making private schools much more like the public schools that we are trying to give people options to get away from. And it's, I, uh, by the way, I loved everything you just said about, you know, <laughs> about the Common Core and letting the accountability be to the kids, so, I mean, to the families. So I wish we weren't debating. I wish we could agree on that. But, I mean, agree on everything else. We definitely agree on that. But think about the Common core for a second. Imagine that we had had some sort of federal tax credit that had regulations attached to it, as we see in higher education. Regulations get attached to tax credits. 
And we had the push for Common Core. You could very easily have seen the federal government say, look, you want to use a tax credit? It has to be at a private school that uses the Common Core, or the euphemism they use for Common Core, which is college and career standards common to a majority of states. In other words, we weren't that far off if we had had school choice from the federal government, instead of breaking up a monopoly, said, here, use these monopoly standards, which will drive your curriculum so that private schools look a whole lot more like public schools. So I don't think that, I think that the main federal threat to monopoly is almost everything it does in education actually supports the monopoly, and that to go to some sort of tax credit or other vehicle for school choice would just sort of spread monopolistic things like a single set of standards to every school in the country. And let's be clear, yes, private schools could say, well, we're not going to participate, but does that happen in higher education? In higher education, you've got Hillsdale, Grove City, and like two others, and everybody else says, we've got to take students with the student aid and all the regulations, because otherwise we can't compete with those other schools that do it and supply all sorts of things that you know students really like, right up to the climbing walls and my favorite, which is you can go to several colleges and they actually, they literally have water parks. Now, I'm not saying that that's the threat of tax credits to private schools, that they'll suddenly all have to have water parks, but you can see in, oh, that'd be nice. And, Easy River, I always enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, just a nicer natatorium. In any event, the point is we can look at higher education and see the dangers that I'm talking about actually working. So I want to open it up to the audience in just a minute, but Tom, one last question for you before we do so. Um, Am I right to think that a substantial federal tax credit program to expand school choice would, in effect, amount to a massive centralization of education spending to the federal level? Um, I hear you actually talking yeah, about no, a type no. of program that would not be capped at $20 billion, but even if there were some sort of cap on the number of credits that could be claimed, this would transfer a lot of funding up to the federal level. Um, why is that something that conservatives should support? Why is that something they should be comfortable with? And wouldn't it just make it harder to accomplish some of the other goals of tax reform, like simplifying the tax code and reducing rates of taxation on individual and corporate income without blowing up the federal deficit? Okay. So first of all, if you're making the argument or someone's making the argument that it leads to centralized spending, there are two words there. One, centralized. It's not centralized at all. You're talking about tens of millions or 100 million uh, taxpayers around the country that will make individual decisions on where they want to take a tax credit. They then will decide out of you know tens of thousands of scholarship organizations that they might donate to, and literally millions of parents will make independent decisions. So that's decentralized, not centralized. In terms of the spending, it's not spending. It is you're talking about backing off on taxes so people have more of their own private money to donate for charitable pur purposes. It's the Supreme Court in the Arizona tuition case, which upheld Arizona's state uh, scholarship tax credit program, basically argued that everything involved in this transaction uh, is not government money, which is why they denied standing in the case. It's private money going to private nonprofits, going to private families to make individual private decisions. There's no government money involved whatsoever. The only way you can call it government money is if you assume that all of private wealth belongs to the government, and so anything that they decide to do with your private wealth uh, constitutes spending. I don't accept 
than from a philosophical perspective. It's individual people spending the money that they earned in the first place, and the government is just simply stepping back uh, and taking less money. Um, so now the other issue I'd say on the states, just quickly, is nothing we're talking about stops the states, all of which have their own state tax codes, from doing whatever they want on school choice or scholarship tax credits, whether they want to have them or not, it's totally up to them. So all the state experimentation uh, that Neil wants, that I like, can continue. The two tax codes are independent, and it's everybody's free to do whatever they want with their own tax codes. So let's open it up to the audience. Uh, please wait for the microphone and be sure to identify yourself and make sure that your question ends with a question mark. <laughs> so yes, you in the back. Hi, I'm Chris Tassoni from 50CAN, and I have a question with a question mark. Um, if, there is, if we're in a moment where there is strong support for school choice, are we missing an opportunity by focusing on the federal level to build really robust, stronger programs approach, uh, serving millions of kids in 15 or 10 or 5 states? Uh, and if, in fact, the, uh, the strength behind this is only among elites at the federal level and there is not that support at this in the states, are we setting ourselves up for backlash against a fragile federal program similar to the backlash against federal support for Common Core? Who do you want to tell? Tom, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. that. So first of all, if you want to focus on 15 or 20 states, what you're saying is you're basically writing off the rest of the country and all the children who live in the rest of the country. Personally, I'm not like excited about that prospect. And the reason states, some states don't have it, like New York, for example, or New Jersey, or Connecticut, or Illinois or California or whatever, is not because there isn't support. The reason they're not having it is just because, frankly, the teachers' unions have a stranglehold on the political class in those states. It has nothing to do with whether moms in the South Bronx or in Harlem or Chicago, south side of Chicago, support school choice or not. The answer is they do. Would they like to get money to give them greater choices? I don't think I've ever met a parent who didn't have money, who wouldn't want money to exercise greater choices for their children. So that's not in question. The magic moment here is not that the overall level of support for school choice has changed among the general population. What's changed is the people who are running the government here are not beholden to the teachers union. In New York, the teachers unions give money to both sides of the aisle. They figured out you can buy a Republican for about five cents more than a Democrat. Okay, so that's kind of an economic insight they have. At the federal level, they stupidly have given 95% of their money to one side. And as a, that's great for them when the Democrats are in control, but when the Republicans are in control, the Republicans, frankly, don't care much what the teachers union have to say because they're totally on the Democratic side. Not that they should be, but they just that's the strategic mistake that they made. So that's the opportunity now is you have a bunch of elected officials that will consider things on the merits without the coercion, excess coercion from the, this one dominant special interest. And you have a president who is, in part because of his wealth, in part because of his personality, is blithely indifferent to what the teachers unions think on these issues. And so I think you have a freedom of movement, a freedom of thought that you don't normally have. Um, and that's not true in most of the states. Once you get out of kind of hardcore red states, the teachers unions still have everything locked down. Uh, I mean, I think what you've said actually is something we've already been seeing, and this is what I was talking about. There's already a backlash 
against the federal government getting involved in school choice, and it's become a much, therefore, a much more vocal and high-profile backlash against school choice itself. And I, uh, as somebody who doesn't like a lot of what the federal government does, I can actually empathize with people who may not like school choice, and they may have very good reasons. You know, I don't agree with them, but I can understand why people say, well, I'm worried about school choice. I think public schools kind of bring us all together. I think they're wrong, but I can certainly understand where good-hearted uh, people think that. And I would be very upset if somebody said, well, you know, you don't really like school choice and you think it's dangerous and your state doesn't, hasn't voted for it, so we're going to go to the federal government and impose it on you. Absolutely, that's what we saw in Common Core. And people, I think, a big bash class against Common Core wasn't necessarily they didn't like the standards, is they didn't like the imposition. Um, and we make this even more dangerous when we talk about, well, let's now have something that reaches out to private schools. But the backlash part that you're talking about may be coming, it's here. We're already seeing it. And I should note that we're worried about teachers unions. I absolutely agree that teachers unions have a lot of power. But I can walk around the, the District of Columbia, and National Education Association has a massive headquarters building, I think that way. The American Federation of Teachers has a massive headquarters building, I think that way. Uh, the National Association of Secondary School Principals, the National School Board Association, they all have headquarters here. And the Department of Education was created largely because the NEA became an active union at the time in the 70s and said, we're going to endorse a political candidate or presidential candidate. And Jimmy Carter said, hey, I'll give you a Department of Education. And why do they want a federal Department of Education? Because it's a nice central way to exert some control. And so I think if we're worried about the teachers' unions, we have to be very worried about what the federal government does. It's sort of one-stop shopping. If you can go to the U.S. Department of Education, it's like, hey, Let's get every private school to do the things that we want them to do. Yes, sir. Well, I'm Tom Gensel, Executive Director of the National School Boards Association. So thank you for the shout-out. I, I was going to use your name. <laughs> but, uh, I appreciate that, Neil. Actually, Where we're very... Where is the building? Did I point the right way? We're over that way. Okay. Um, but actually, we're very concerned about federal overreach, as I think you know. We've been active in that space. Uh, but my question actually deals with the reference to school districts as a monopoly. And I find that kind of interesting since um, there was never a federal mandate to create local school districts. This was done individually by each of the 50 states. They decided to create school districts. So I'm not seeing where that's a monopoly. I do have a question, though, uh, about accountability. So the question is under a voucher issue, and I, and I agree with Neil uh, completely. I think whatever passes here is going to look very different uh, a few years from now because there's going to be more and more effort to regulate it. The question about accountability, though, is for parents making a decision. I'm certainly not standing here defending standardized testing. But the money setting aside the, uh, the tax credits on a voucher, that money is not the parents' money, it's the taxpayers' money. It's everybody here and everybody else who's contributing. So why should that decision about accountability for schools be left solely to the parents when the decision is being funded by taxpayers? Yeah, in my case, I'm not sitting here arguing for vouchers. I'm arguing for uh, giving people the greater opportunity to give their own private money to private nonprofits for scholarships. So they already do it under the charitable deduction. We're trying to increase the tax incentive for that. There's no government money involved at all, uh, and they're not taking. And what the Supreme Court ruled, whether you know people in the room agree with it or not, 
that the reason they wouldn't give standing is it could it was nobody else's money involved, so nobody could be harmed because it was the private individual that freely chose to give the donation that made the donation. So nobody else's money was implicated. People made the argument tax expenditures and all that kind of stuff, and the Supreme Court ruled uh, against that uh, from a constitutional perspective. So to me, that debate's been already offered and decided. And so I understand your argument on the voucher side. That's one of the reasons I favor going on the tax side is because I don't want to give uh, you know, people on that side of the aisle, uh, I don't mean the political aisle, but on, on that side of the ledger, if you will, uh, an easy argument to make for more regulation. Uh, and from the, just quickly on the monopoly, if you're a parent in a neighborhood uh, in which there are no charter school options and you personally can't afford private school even if you want to attend there, it's a monopoly situation. You're forced to go to a public school whether you think it's a crappy school or not. And that's true. And prior to us getting charter schools in New York State, that was true for most of the parents in New York City who lived in the neighborhoods that nobody in this room probably would freely choose to live in. And so what we're saying is there should be a lot more options. If the parent chooses the public school, God bless them. They choose a charter school, God bless them. They choose a private school, religious or not. To me, I don't know their child. I don't even know them. So I think they should make those decisions all by themselves. And I just want more and more choices, like we have in all the rest of our lives. We can choose almost everything else. So I just think parents, on the most fundamental thing, finding an education that they're comfortable, that reflects the values of the family, is an important thing to make as widely available as possible, including all across the country. It shouldn't only be available in red states or only in states that the teachers' unions don't object to. You know, my guess is that you're not going to have a lot to disagree with. In no, I mean, only the last part about whether or not it yeah. should be federal, which we've been over. I would actually add a little more, though, about the monopoly of a school district, which is uh, not only can it be the only choice, but you are forced as a property owner or as a state taxpayer to fund those districts, to fund those schools. And Microsoft or any other bad monopoly that we want to think of, they can't actually make you fund them whereas the school district can. So I'd say it's even worse than the kind of monopolies that we talk about. That said, I still also think the Constitution is extremely important, and I would much rather have local decision-making or state decision-making than some mechanism for the federal government to start making decisions for everyone. So we reached... Uh, oh, that's it. Sorry, Marty. That's it. I'm cutting you off. You're at your time. So uh, we need to leave time for the second panel. Contrary to what Neil suggested, I actually don't think the structure of the two debates implies a clear winner or loser to this one. In fact, I think the topics are complementary. I do. I do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> topics That's are, why you're changing the <laughs> The topics are complementary in that it's really only by thinking through the questions of what would this actually look like that you can make a fully informed decision about whether it's worth doing in the first place. So uh, let's move on to that question of uh, what these programs should look like if it were to be done. But before we do so, please join me in uh, thanking our first panel. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.